Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the ancient Greek military unit, the Sacred Band of Thebes. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. Before we get started, we have some content warnings for this episode. This episode contains an in-depth discussion of Greek sexual norms, which includes discussing pederasty, a form of relationship between adults and adolescents. It also contains a lot of discussion of battles and therefore of violence in war. It also contains a discussion of the exhumation, exhibition and mistreatment of human remains, as well as mild sexual content and brief mentions of modern homophobia, including imprisonment. If any of that doesn't sound like something that you want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to a different episode instead. So as you may know, we often discuss our sources before we actually start telling you about the thing we're talking about. The infamous lit review? The lit review, yeah. Every podcast needs one. (laughs) Per episode. In this instance, I'm actually not really going to talk much about our sources at the start of the episode. I used a lot of like little sources for all of the different sections, so we'll mostly discuss them as they come up and talk about what's wrong with them when we need to. <laughs> I see. With one exception uh, being I wanted to talk a little bit about a book called The Sacred Band by James Rom. Uh, This book is, I'm fairly confident in saying, the newest scholarship that exists on the Sacred Band because it came out in early June of this year. And we decided to do an episode on the Sacred Band because the publisher of the book reached out to us and offered us an advanced review copy. Thank you for that. I must pay for that copy in talking about it now. (laughs) As the title suggests, James Rom's The Sacred Band is about the Sacred Band of Thebes, which you'll hear an awful lot about in a minute. I'm genuinely very interested to hear about the Sacred Band of Thebes. I literally only know that it's a gay army. It is a gay (laughs) army. That's all I know. But the book also more widely explores the political and social and military context of the roughly four decades in which the band existed. Unusually for us, you have also read this book, Alice. What did you think of it as someone who didn't then go read 10 other books about the same period? (laughs) I feel like my thoughts are a little clouded. So how did you feel about it? As a Rome person opposed to a Greek person. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know much background about the Sacred Band of Thebes or ancient Greece. I'm not going in as a person who knows nothing because I have, you know, studied this a bit, but I definitely wasn't reading it being like, oh yeah, I know all this. So I just wanted to give you an idea of how I went Mm. into this book. Yeah. So probably like about where most people who pick up the book would be. Yeah. Like if you're interested enough to pick up the book, you probably have a vague idea of, you know, there was Athens, there was Sparta, they were at war a lot, Thebes was also here you know that's the general context obviously Eli will give you a good version of that later in the episode (laughs) maybe a stupid question but where is Thebes do you know where Athens is yes it's north of that okay cool so it's in Greece okay it's it's in Greece it's quite central to Greece and it's like roughly to the north of Athens quite close to Athens within like a day's ride or a couple days walk all right so even like quite close in like ancient travel times yeah this will come up cool people will travel between these cities It's key. Yeah, look, I enjoyed this book. I found it quite an easy read. And I think it provided like 
a very approachable and accessible kind of background on the political context and the military context, I was very frustrated by the lack of content about the Sacred Band of Thebes. If this book had not been titled The Sacred Band, I would probably not have guessed I was ostensibly reading a book about the Sacred Band of Thebes. It reads like a book more generally about the historical period in which that band existed. Is there like a chapter about the Sacred Band? No, it's included throughout. So it starts off with the events which we'll discuss I assume in a minute of the events that led to the creation of the sacred band and it kind of goes through the political history and kind of the different battles and conflicts that occurred during the sacred band's existence and periodically it'll mention you know and the sacred band was at this battle and they did this or you know certain people who were involved in the creation of the band and that kind of thing it will mention what they're doing at different times but it doesn't really hone in on the band and focus on the band and use that as a vessel to tell the story. It just tells you the history of Thebes more than the history of the Sacred Band and happens to mention the Sacred Band where it comes up, I found. So I think if I went into it wanting to learn about the Sacred Band, I would come away disappointed. But if you go into it like, I just want a general history of Thebes in this period, you think it's quite good? Yeah. Okay. I think that's mostly pretty fair. That was also my disappointment in it as someone who then had to put together an episode on the Sacred Band of Thebes. <laughs> um, I will state that, as we'll obviously discuss in a minute, there just isn't a lot of information about the Sacred mm-hmm. Band, so it's not really possible to have a full book just focused on that and a lot of the political machinations and so forth are necessary context mm. to you know what is like a military unit engaged in battles against other Greek peoples, etc., But I do feel that there is stuff that could be said about the band that isn't included in the book, Mm. which is kind of surprising given that he had, like, so little to work with in putting the book together. You'd think he'd really just, like, squeeze every mention of Mm. them he possibly could. So, like, I do agree with you there. And, like, more broadly, I agree. It's quite an easy read. I feel like that could come across as insulting with a book like this, but I don't mean it in that way. I think, like, it takes a lot of quite complicated material and makes it fairly clear. Mm. So that's good if you're wanting a guide to this four decades of Theban history. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't, like, simplify or dumb down the material, but it does present it in a way that you could understand without having, like, a huge background in ancient Greece or anything, if you just picked up this book. Um, One thing that I did like, which I feel could be quite contentious, is the amount of anecdotes that really don't have anything to do with the main plot of the Mm. book, quote-unquote. He'll just, like, go into, you know, an interesting thing that was happening, Mm. you know, regarding this other person who just come up. And you could call that extraneous material if you were so inclined. I feel like as someone who, you know, like studies the ancient world, that sort of the further you get in, the more focused and specialized you Mm. become. And I feel like it takes you quite a while to get to a point where you feel like you have kind of a big picture of what Greece is like at this time Mm. or, you know, any time. And I feel that in giving all of this quite disparate information, it really does give you this idea of, you know, at the same time that this big military coup was happening, someone was doing this thing in this other place. And it did make ancient Greece feel more just like a place Mm. that you could imagine being in compared to a lot of other history books. I think that's one of the things that makes it like a very readable book is even though it is fundamentally like a military history it doesn't only talk about military history it gives you many different like kinds of stories from ancient Mm. Greece like there's military and political history and then it goes quite 
in depth into the personal characters and personal circumstances of a lot of the specific people it talks about and their kind of personal life journeys and that kind of thing. So it gives you a lot of different kinds of stories rather than just bogging you down and, you know, the Spartans are on the right flank and the cavalry was on the left flank or whatever. That's not, <laughs> like, a real military example. But you know what I mean. So the vibes I'm getting is that if you wanted to, like, write a novel about Thebes, you would be like, this would be a good starting point. Yeah. 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 Okay. Like, I don't know if the author would consider this a commendation, but I do feel like someone could read this and come away from it being like, yeah, I'm going to go write fanfic about Pelopidus. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's genuinely quite a compelling selling point. Yeah. 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 So before we get into talking about the Sacred Band of Thebes itself, I wanted to give a bit of background into the political situation and just the situation in general in ancient Greece at this time. Um, The existence of the Sacred Band spanned a 40-year period from roughly 378 BCE to 338 BCE, and I feel like to a lot of people that sort of just won't really mean that much Mm, if I just give you those dates. So I wanted to sort of try and situate us in Greek history. Those four decades fall towards the end of the Classical Era, which is a roughly 200-year period during which a lot of the cultural, literary, and political achievements that Greece is known for occurred. So your vision of ancient Greece, we're about there. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. The classical era is the period that sees the completion of the Parthenon, the flourishing of Greek tragedy and democracy, and the work of the medical writer Hippocrates, the historian Herodotus, and the philosopher Socrates. Okay. So really like literally everything we've heard of about ancient Greece. (laughs) Except for Sappho and Homer. Ah, yes. Who were much older than this? Much older, yeah. Okay. So you, you understand ancient Greece. Okay, I've got this. You can give me my classics degree now. <laughs> okay, there is no unified Greece at this time, but instead a patchwork of independent city-states that were broadly similar, but were also quite different in terms of their laws, customs, and culture, and so forth. These city-states are often at war, either overseas or against foreign invaders or amongst themselves. And alliances were constantly shifting. So much so that I'm not going to try and keep track of who's allied with Thebes when okay. during this episode. Okay. That's Do fair. they all have a language in common? Yes. All of the Greek city-states, they all still speak Greek? They all speak Greek. There are, like, dialectical differences between different okay. parts of Greece. They are all mutually intelligible, though. I will tell you a fun fact about <laughs> the dialects now, uh, <laughs> which is that, you know, as people have always done, sometimes they made fun of each other's dialects. Uh, so something that we'll talk about a bit in this episode is that Thebes was kind of regarded as being like sort of like the country bumpkins of Mm -hmm. the ancient Greek world that were sort of made fun of by like Athens who were big fancy boys. Um, (laughs) It's very funny and like obviously we will discuss this in more detail but to pair the country bumpkins with the guys with the homosexual army. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. Uh um and so the like the dialect in Boeotia, which is the general region of Greece that Thebes was in, is a little bit different than the dialect that's in Athens. I mean, I just gave you some examples of Athenian names like Socrates or Euripides and things like that. They end in that E's sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in Boeotia and in Thebes, they end in a like ass sound. So we have Pelopidas, Epaminondas, uh, people who come up. 
So there's a that kind of like accent difference, and uh-huh. Athenians made fun of <laughs> the Thebans for it. Are they like spelt the same? They just pronounce it differently. No, they're spelt differently. Okay. Like it's it's like a result of that sort of dialectical yeah. difference. Okay. Yeah. So returning to how ancient Greek life is just a never-ending series of wars. The classical period began with the Persian Wars, in which the Greeks were invaded by and managed to defeat the Persian Empire. This is the war that famously features the Battle at Thermopylae with the three hundred Spartans. Oh, yes, yes. Dying. We've seen this movie. Yes. At least I've seen this movie. I've know. seen this movie. There you yeah. go. It had a bunch of, like, Cyclopses and stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> it's not a good movie. No. <laughs> you wouldn't say they were historically accurate. Let's not open this for right. can of worms. Yeah. All right. Carry on. So the Battle at Thermopylae was in 480 BCE. 50 years later, from 431 to 404 BCE, the Peloponnesian War was fought between Athens and Sparta and their allies. And then the classical period ends with the death of Alexander the Great. Okay. So you really have like a war sandwich with war in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) The worst sandwich. The worst sandwich. Um, Athens and Sparta have obviously captured the modern imagination more than any of the other Greek city-states. And particularly for Athens, we have a lot more evidence about them, a lot more surviving literature and so forth. Thebes is therefore comparatively rarely talked about. Um, At the time, was Thebes as powerful or? Well, it depends on the time. Okay. Uh, So with this like constantly shifting alliances, which city-states were powerful and which ones weren't was constantly in flux. Generally, Athens and Sparta are the big boys. But during this period that we're talking about, Thebes did manage to become a major power in Greece and held its own against both of these cities. Oh, okay. Using the power of gay army? Uh, allegedly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now to like narrow down a bit and actually talk about Thebes, we're going to talk about the events that set up the creation of the band now. So in 382 BCE, a passing Spartan army entered Thebes and carried out a coup. The Spartans seized the Cadmia, which is Thebes' Acropolis, or its major stronghold, and installed a Spartan garrison taking control of the city. When you say a passing army, were they literally just wandering past and they were like, this looks juicy? (laughs) So this is the first of many times where incidental comments I make that I hope you don't ask too many questions about is a whole historical can of worms that we can have a debate about. Okay. So what happened is that a guy called Leontiades, who was a Theban political figure who was pro-Sparta, let them in. Oh, okay. That's why it was a coup. Yeah. Now, some people argue that, yep, they were generally just passing and this was an opportunistic... And Leontiades just opened the door and was like, hey guys, you guys get in here. And some people (laughs) argue that it had already been planned and that there was no reason for them to pass quite that close to Thebes if they weren't planning on Coming in. going into Thebes. It's not important. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the Spartans are here. As I've sort of alluded to, prominent Thebans at the time were divided between those who wanted Thebes to ally with Sparta and those who wanted it to ally with Athens. The relative appeal or lack of from each of those is also not important. <laughs> Political stuff. Okay. Yeah. After the coup, hundreds of Thebans who were known to be pro-Athenian had to flee Thebes, and unsurprisingly, they went to Athens, which, as we've already established, is only a day away. <laughs> they were welcomed into the city and made homes for themselves in Athens. Some of the Theban exiles hatched a plot to take back their city. They were led by a man named Pelopidas, 
who oh, we've yes. already mentioned. For our fan fiction. For our fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. In the winter of 379 to 378 BCE, a handful of exiles returned to Thebes. They crossed into Boeotia dressed as hunters to escape notice and entered Thebes in little groups also to escape notice. I feel like this is good, like, film material. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. To do a mm. montage of them all sneaking in different gates. Yeah. 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 Seven gated Thebes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I say. We're not <laughs> getting into that. In, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> They'd chosen the night of the winter solstice, which was the longest night of the year, and also the night that the aphrodisiac was celebrated. Basically, this means that the Spartans are all partying and getting drunk and hopefully won't notice that they are being reverse cooed. Okay. (laughs) I like that you've mentioned it's the longest night of the year, and I don't know if you were, like, intending this implication, but it implies they're like, this is good. This will give us the maximum amount of, like, cover of darkness to carry out a plan. No, I think that's it. I think that's the plan, yes. Okay, that's consciously the plan. Once in Thebes, the group was helped and sheltered by... By sympathizers who had remained in the city. Thebes was being governed by two tyrants, Archaeus and Leontiades, who we've met. Is tyrants a neutral word here or an evil word? Uh, like, for Greece, kind of somewhere in the middle, depending on the political leanings of the time and person you're talking about. But just, you know, they were two big strong men in charge and okay. the heroes of our story don't want them there. All right. So, take, take <laughs> so for aside. our purposes, for the sake of our Sacred Band of Thebes movie, they're tyrants in the, like, modern sense. Yeah, that's fine, I think. Okay, yeah. cool. So Archaeus and Leontiades were not hanging out together. They were in separate houses, and Archaeus was drinking and partying and having a great old time. Somehow in Athens, a priest had learned about the plot and decided that he was going to send a letter warning the rulers of Thebes that this plan was underway. So a messenger comes in from Athens to Archaeus and says that they have this urgent letter, you need to read it tonight. And he says, no, 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 urgent things can wait until the morning. You know, we're having a party. And he puts it to the side, like under a pillow, and doesn't read it. Perfect. Yeah. Well. Um, so he's there with his men, and women are meant to be brought in to entertain the drunken men. But instead, uh, a man called Philitus, who's their, like, chief of staff, is in on the plot, and he brings in the conspirators dressed as women instead. Okay. They reveal themselves and attack and kill Archaeus and his men. It's been very successful. Yeah. A second group go to Leontiades' house and Pelopidas kills him. All good so far. Okay. Uh, I say that like there's going to be a twist. There isn't. It just goes fine. It's just everything just goes fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, the two groups then rendezvoused and go to the prison where over a hundred of their faction had been imprisoned and they freed them. They then went through the streets calling for Theban patriots to join them and they armed everyone who came. So obviously this is going quite well. There was still a Spartan garrison in the Cadmia and they held out for a week, but inevitably the Cadmia fell and Thebes was again under Theban control. How many guys like came from Athens to Thebes to free Thebes? Like a dozen. Oh, okay. So it is like a very small group of people. Mm, yeah. That makes it an even better movie. Yeah. That's how they managed to get in as small groups pretending to be hunters. Like, you couldn't do that if there were like 400 of them. <laughs> this is our army. We just love to hunt. So, finally, we can talk about the Sacred Band of Thebes. Nice. I'm so intrigued. We don't have an exact date or year or anything like that, but the Sacred Band was formed shortly after this, sometime in the early 370s BCE. James Rom attributes this directly to the guarantee of Spartan revenge after the liberation of the Cadmia. So we're in trouble. We better, you know, make a gay army. (laughs) 
Our most informative source on the band from the ancient world is a biography of Pelopidas that was written by a guy called Plutarch. Plutarch was a native Boeotian who lived in the mid first to early second centuries CE, so like 400 years later. So, you know, obviously keep that in mind yeah. regarding his this reliability. Is, this is not a primary source. No, no, no. We don't super duper have those. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I mean, I guess a thing to consider about somebody like Plutarch writing 400 years after the fact is that he would have been drawing on sources that we no longer have. Yeah. Whereas if I read a book published last year, it's not giving me a clue about sources that don't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And Plutarch does mention by name historians whose work we no longer have that he used. There are other ancient sources, to be clear, that we're drawing on, and we'll discuss some of those in good time. But because Plutarch really does talk at the most length about the sacred band, a lot of the details I'm about to give you come from him. So I just wanted to introduce you to him. Okay. Nice to meet you, Plutarch. So the sacred band of Thebes was housed on the Cadmia, and its upkeep and training were paid for by the state. For this reason, they were also called the city band. Um, the band was formed by a man named Gorgidas, who had been one of the rebel sympathizers who'd remained in Thebes, so like one of the guys who let them in and hid them mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, Gorgidas is someone that we have to mention because he has a significant role, but he is never going to come up again. Uh, he <laughs> quickly disappears from the historical record. Possibly he was killed in battle. We don't know. Okay. He's gone now. <laughs> cool. Yeah. After this, Pelopidas took over leadership of the band and the band went on to be very successful militarily. We're going to talk about the three major battles that they're mentioned in association with shortly, but first we need to say a little bit about how the band is gay. What the people are really here for. Yes. <clears throat> so was the band gay? Shockingly, I do not have a yes or no answer for you on that. <laughs> I'm stuck. And I will now answer that question over a long period of time. <laughs> okay, let's go. So the band, to be clear, was said to be composed of 150 pairs of male lovers. Plutarch, for example, wrote, some say that this band was composed of lovers and beloved. He goes on to quote the Theban general Pamenes, who was like alive at the time that the sacred band existed, in saying, a band that is held together by the friendship between lovers lovers is indissoluble and not to be broken since the lovers are ashamed to play the coward before their beloved and the beloved before their lovers and both stand firm in danger to protect each other so the general reason why they decided to make a military unit out of 150 couples was because they love each other so much that they'll do really good in battle that's such a wildly different take to a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the legalization of sex between men in the uk and they were like with the exception of the military because that will like mess up like mm. military dynamics and cohesion. Yeah, that's I just mean, a completely guess, opposite take. I guess like obviously the real answer to that is uh, it's fine for people to be gay in the military, but you could also kind of draw look either none of them are gay or they're all gay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the only option. Mm. We'll put all the gays in one unit. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> So I am kind of shocked that you haven't asked me what the sacred band name means before this point. I Now that you have raised this, I can't believe that I didn't question that. But I was like, sacred band? Yeah, that seems legit. The name the sacred band is obviously an English translation of the Greek name, which was Hieros Lokos, which does translate quite directly to the sacred band. Um, and the meaning of the name is obscure. So they're the sacred band, but we don't know why. Yeah, we have like guesses. So Plutarch gives a reason for the band's name. In discussing lovers and beloveds pledging their faith to each other, he said, it was natural then that the band should also be called sacred because even Plato calls the lover a friend inspired of God. So he seems to understand the name to be a reference to like the pledge of love between the pairs. I'm happy to accept that. 
I have more reasons. Oh, all right, let's have another one. <laughs> so the scholar David Letow, whose work we're going to discuss quite a bit, makes some sort of speculative comments about why this might be. He notes that in Homer, the epithet hiera, so like sacred, is used in reference to an army and to small groups of guards, and there probably the sense is this more archaic meaning of hieros as like strength, but divinely inspired strength. Okay. okay. So it might have that sort of sense. He also notes that the phrase hieros so sacred army is used to describe the army that buried Achilles, Patroclus and Antilochus, who were all later associated with pederastic love. So that's kind of an interesting connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a conclusion, but you know. Yeah, that's some um, things. So there's some things. Okay. okay. All sound pretty plausible. What happens if you and your partner break up? Do you get thrown out of the army? Yeah. So this is a question that I have. Um, <laughs> And I do think that we should basically just wildly speculate a bit about how exactly this would have worked. It's all very well and good to say 150 couples, but yeah, like how was that in daily life? So to give us an idea of what we're working with here, I wanted to give you some context about Greek male homosexuality Mm -hmm. at the time. There are broad norms of what homosexuality looks like in the ancient Greek world, but just like there are difference in language and customs and things like that between different city-states there is also some degree of difference in sexual norms Mm -hmm. most of our evidence on this topic comes from athens and it's hard to tell how thebes would compare to the norms that we understand to to have existed in athens okay our evidence for boeotian homosexuality is quite limited there aren't very many sources at all and they're generally either from people who are not from boeotia or from people who are from boeotia but writing about the distant past so plutarch from example is from Boeotia but is 400 years later and then we have sources much closer to when the sacred band existed but you know they're from like Athens or something mm. yeah yeah so we don't have a convenient theme at the time he's like we were gay and it was like this no okay nevertheless the scholar Charles Huppets who has done some work on Boeotian homosexuality conveniently concludes that themes doesn't seem to radically deviate from Athens or the rest of the Greek world generally so mm. that's convenient so the like norms about male homosexuality in Athens and say Sparta are similar? So similar enough in that they'd have sort of the same basic structures but with regional differences. Sparta is quite extreme in its difference to places like Thebes and Athens because of its really intense military culture and that has implications for things like how pederasty looked there but that's its own episode. But yeah, broadly speaking they still had pederasty. Yeah. Which brings us to pederasty. (laughs) Okay. So pederasty is the most widely documented form of ancient Greek homosexuality and that refers to an erotic relationship between an adult man and an adolescent boy. Respectively they were called the Erastes and the Eromenus. So I've had a few times where I've mentioned things like the lover and the beloved. Those are translations of the Greek words Erastes and Eromenus. So the lover is the older guy and the beloved is the younger guy. Yeah. So the kind of like active passive nature of that is built into the terminology that's used to refer to it there um i always planned that our first episode about greece would just be on pederasty because it really is the baseline that you need to get your head around in order to talk about you know other things or more specific like particular people or whatever but we have not done that (laughs) um so i don't want to go too much into talking about like what exactly was involved like we know things about courtship rituals and stuff like that which we'll talk about in their own episode one day but basically just it's an adult man 
man. It's an adolescent boy. That's the relationship. Mm -hmm. So although pederasty is the most common example of Greek homosexuality, um, we do have evidence for some male-male sexual relationships that were not pederastic and instead took place between people of roughly the same age. This is generally referred to as peer homosexuality, to give us an easy way to refer to it. The scholar Thomas K. Hubbard has written a survey on examples of peer homosexuality. A lot of the examples he finds are between adolescents, and we're not going to talk about them because I don't think they're really relevant to the Sacred Band of Thebes, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are also some examples between adult men. So I'm going to tell you a few things, but this isn't like all of the evidence that exists for this. I'm just giving you like a couple of examples. Okay. So Aristotle, for example, acknowledges that pederastic relationships could develop into lifelong relationships if they were based on more than physical attraction. He says, but many couples continue their relationship if, as a result of spending time together, they came to love each other's character because they are of similar character. There are also references to sexual relationships between adult men on vases and in comedy, and so we're overall left with this impression that peer homosexuality was marginalised and ridiculed, but certainly not unknown to the ancient Greeks. So when you say that it's in comedy, is it like the butt of the joke yes. in comedy? Okay, yeah. Emphasis on butt. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Aristotle seems fairly like chill and respectful about that from that quote where he's like sometimes they just came to love each other into adulthood yeah and that sort of raises some questions uh that we don't really have satisfactory answers to Hubbard who like did that survey of sources also noted that peer homosexuality has largely been neglected by the scholarship there just isn't that much analysis of texts that seem to reference peer homosexuality compared to ones that reference pederasty. Part of the argument that goes on there is, well, in that Aristotle quote or in like relationships like that, are we understanding that these are two adult men in a sexual relationship or two adult men who are still really, really close, but for who the sexual element of that relationship is ended, as would be widely considered appropriate. Okay. So to return to Thebes as best we can, we do see some evidence of both pederasty and peer homosexuality. The Odes of Pindar allude to pederasty several times, as well as praising the beauty of young athletes. There are also a couple of important myths that feature Theban pederasty. The first regards Laius, the king of Thebes, and incidentally the father of Oedipus, um, (laughs) who was exiled from Thebes and received by a man named Pelops. Laius fell in love with Pelops' son, Chrysippus, and this is recorded as being the origin story of pederasty, so like the first time that a man ever fell in love with a boy. (laughs) Wild. It's kind of funny to have an origin story of pederasty because like that kind of implies that everyone else after that looked at that and was like oh good idea mate like yes yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the thing about like origin myths in general right mm-hmm. yeah the second myth is that the companion of Heracles or Hercules if you must Euleus who helped him complete his 12 labors was understood in Boeotia to be Heracles's Romanos Aristotle records that the tomb of Euleus in Thebes was a sacred site where male couples made a pledge of faithfulness to each other. There are also paintings that represent both pederasty and peer homosexuality that can be found on Boeotian black figure vases. In that context, is the peer homosexuality comedic or is it just... Basically, no, probably. I know that there is a lot of work about, like, for what contexts these vases were created. I don't really have a lot of familiarity with that myself. I am a classics person and I stray very far away from analysing, like, material culture whenever possible so i'm just not very knowledgeable about that part of classics i think the way these tend to get read is more that just like someone who wanted and genuinely liked that image commissioned it to have in their house okay Mm. so it's kind of implying that it has a niche 
niche audience at least yeah yeah to the best of my knowledge okay <laughs> yeah so i'll give you an example of a gay vase from thebes charles huppert's notes one that depicts a party and i do mean like a boogie party not like <laughs> right. a group of three satyrs and four men all who are clearly bearded adults most of whom have erections and they're in facing pairs and in two of the pairs one of the men is stroking the other's beard in what huppert's has interpreted as like a courtship gesture oh yeah okay there's a similar gesture that gets made on pederastic pottery where the erastes will have his hand on the romanus's chin Mm -hmm. uh in that context the other hand is generally on the boy's genitals i don't think that's the case here from memory but it's still quite reminiscent of it Mm -hmm. um the scene depicted is generally you know one of a group of men getting drunk and relaxing their inhibitions and that leading to male male eroticism on the basis of all of that evidence charles hoppets and i generally think this is a reasonable conclusion understands Thebes to fundamentally be similar to the rest of Greece in terms of its sexual norms. Mm, Okay. Having set all that up, it is worth noting that Thebes is presented in some ancient Greek sources as not being like other ancient Greek Mm city-states and instead being very permissive and free when it came to sexuality. Oh, interesting. As I've mentioned as well, Boeotians were regarded as being sort of like unsophisticated and coarse by other peoples in Greece, particularly by the neighbouring Athenians, and it seems like those two stereotypes are somewhat linked. I will explain. So our oldest source on homosexuality in Boeotia is Plato's Symposium, which we've talked about before. It comes up when you talk about gay stuff in ancient Greece. (laughs) Maybe we'll do an episode on it one day. So Plato's Symposium is a philosophical dialogue in which several men at a banquet decide that they're all going to give a speech in praise of love, and then a lot of stuff about gay sex gets said, so... (laughs) That's very good as a source. Pausanias, the second speaker, compares attitudes to homosexuality in different regions of Greece, and he says the following about Boeotia. Eros in Athens and Sparta is a complex matter, for in Boeotia, where skills in speaking are lacking, the straightforward rule is that it's good to gratify one's lover sexually. No one, young or old, would consider this shameful. Because their skill in the use of language is not very good, they wish, I suppose, to save themselves the trouble of having to win over boys with persuasive speech. So <laughs> that was just very funny. <laughs> He's like, they can't really like flirt. So, so they just go for it there. Just cut to the chase. <laughs> yeah. So he's saying that because Boeotians lack linguistic abilities, they're sexually permissive and is clearly understanding Athenians to be sexually and intellectually superior. Ultimately, Hafez concludes that the impression that you get from this is that Thebes isn't actually more sexually free than anywhere else. This is probably just a regional stereotype. Yeah, like that's the impression I get there because it includes like them being linguistically undeveloped or whatever. Yes. And also because he didn't really give any like specific, say, like norms that actually differed or anything. He's just kind of like, yeah, they're having a lot of sex over there. I feel like the lack of actual detail helps me to think that's probably just him like negatively stereotyping Thebans. Now that we've kind of gone over a bit of context for what homosexuality looked like in ancient Greece, I'd like us to try and apply this context to the band. So brief sections of work on Greek homosexuality or on Theban military history often make mention of the sacred band. And in these texts, scholars generally treat the erotic composition of the band as true. However, although there is this positive scholarly consensus, mention of the band generally only constitutes 
quite a small part of those works and therefore they typically don't really contain a lot of analysis or in-depth exploration of our sources. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of things that said this happened, but no one would answer my questions, basically. So we're going to (laughs) try. Yeah, we're going to try. It is clear that most scholars understand the band to have consisted specifically of pederastic couples, and this posits a relationship structure that we understand fairly well and that was quite conventional, but poses logistical challenges when applied to the band. There's some scholarly debate over the exact age that the younger member could be, but the broad consensus is that they were between the start of puberty and the end of adolescence, or like full adulthood. So roughly we can understand them to be teenagers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be like a hard upper limit. It's not like you turn 18 and you're now an adult and cannot be in a Romanos. But the relationship was meant to cease when the younger party reached maturity as an adult, often signified symbolically through the growth of a full beard. Okay. So if the younger partner was going to be a teen, was it normal for teens to be in the army or would they have been considered too young? They would have been considered too young. Okay, so straight away that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I have like a whole quote about that, but we've kind of just said it. Is it possible then, you know how you were talking before about how like sources to do with peer homosexuality haven't really been explored in the same depth as pederasty? Is it possible that scholars are making an assumption that this is pederastic when in fact it wasn't because that's just their understanding of ancient Greek like male homosexuality? So I absolutely do feel that most sources in which I saw this mentioned are just kind of making an assumption. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I've already mentioned, they're not really going all that in depth and I feel like works like that are pretty apt to just kind of cite each other in a circle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be like, I need to have my paragraph on the Sacred Band of Thebes now. That'll do. One of the exceptions to this is a scholar called David Leitau, who we've already mentioned, and he notes the logistical issues that you've noted. Good job, Dave. Good job, Dave. Saying that, you know, it's about the age of 20 that men became eligible to go into the army and therefore basically the age at which you become old enough to be in the Sacred Band should be the age at which you can no longer be in a pederastic relationship or Mm. at least as the younger party. He also points out that even if there was a period of overlap between those two Mm. parts in your life, it would be quite short. And Mm. so you'd have this sacred band with this like ridiculously high turnover. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. That's just not a very effective way to run a military unit. Um, So he goes on to propose that instead of being pairs who were in like active and sexual pederastic relationships, they would have been more likely to be pairs of adult men who had previously been in those relationships. Like what Aristotle described to us before. Yeah, like what Aristotle describes to us before, potentially. Mm -hmm. Plutarch records that it was practiced at Thebes for an Orestes to gift his Aromanos a set of armor when he came of age, which could potentially be relevant there. And I think that also highlights the impracticalities of imagining that they are like an adult man and an adolescent man. Because if an Erastes is gifting his Aromanos armor when he comes of age, that's really linking coming of age and being able to be in the military, which is already linked to no longer being the right age to be the younger party. Yeah, like that's clearly making like a kind of distinct step in your life from being the younger member of a pederastic relationship into being in the military. Like that is the progression of your life. Yeah. Regarding the armor, I wanted to note a comment that a scholar called James Davidson made in a book he wrote about Greek homosexuality fairly recently. He speculates that this custom might have meant that the pairs had like matching insignia that would have made them visible as couples to anyone who saw them in battle. To be clear, this is just like wild speculation. <laughs> 
Um, Davidson, Riding into battle in our matching armor. Yes. <laughs> da- I love it. Davidson makes some like pretty wild claims generally. Okay. I saw him cited in another thing that was just like Davidson 2007, the page numbers, and then in brackets, inaccurate. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> uh, so, like, I'm by no means saying that this happened, but, like, I thought it was some pretty fun <laughs> speculation, so I thought I would tell you. I'm glad you brought us the matching armor. Yeah. It's like those Korean Instagram couples. It is. It's exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just an ancient Greek army. It's just an ancient Greek army. <laughs> Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, we've already heard from Aristotle that these relationships could sometimes persist into adulthood in some form. Later also suggests the parallel of the philosopher Socrates and his previous Oromenos, the general Alcibiades. In Plato's Symposium, again we're here, Alcibiades describes being in battle with Socrates at the Battle of Delium and refusing to leave him behind because of his esteem for him. That seems like exactly what the Sacred Band of Thebes is based off of. Leitau also suggests that this could give us some context to potentially understand the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, which I thought was very interesting. Oh yeah, huh, that's true. So I think that this does potentially make a great deal of sense, but I do think that there are still some difficulties or at least implications for our understanding of Greek homosexuality that Mm. we need to take into account. So we have that Aristotle quote that says that, you know, many couples would continue this relationship, Mm. but that doesn't actually really give us an idea of how prevalent this is or what those relationships looked like in adulthood. Mm. Similarly, regarding Socrates and Alcibiades at Delium, I do think that that's quite a direct parallel, but I also think there's quite a difference between this incidental encounter on the battlefield, Mm. you know, so they don't like go into battle paired, they're just both in the same battle they're not like wearing matching arms no (laughs) (laughs) and what's going on apparently in the sacred band of thieves where they're deliberately in pairs Mm, yeah Um, that's not just sort of a natural these two men have a lot of esteem for each other because of their previous relationship that's instead a situation where they like are still a couple yeah yeah in some way yeah I was going to ask, which is something presumably we know nothing about, about (laughs) what the selection process for this army was. Did you and your boyfriend just like front up to the office and sign up or? Yeah. We don't know. (laughs) They're generally referred to as being like picked men or selected men, men who are like really good. Okay. Uh, And I think this is just because of phrasing in the sources that refers to them as like chosen. Yeah. uh, Without really going into what that means from memory. Really awkward if you're like really, really good, like militarily, like you're really good in battle and your boyfriend's like that's just not his like it's not his thing <laughs> like bad luck or if you're just like the best fighter that Thebes has ever had but you're single yeah, yeah like, yes. these are kind of the <laughs> questions that it raises do yeah. they like find you a guy or like <laughs> is the whole of Thebes just like really really invested in your love life like what yeah. happened this army would be so much better if so and so was in it so we need to find him a man <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is like some ridiculous ancient rom-com um I <laughs> the Bachelor Thieves. <laughs> I would also note that people could have multiple Aromanoi mm. in their lives. Like can... an adult man could have an Aromanos who then like grew up and was no longer eligible for that role. Mm. And then, you know, a bit later he would form a relationship with another boy. So were you like being like, you know, sorry, I know that we, you know, joined this army together after we stopped being in this relationship, but now my second Aromanos has grown up and like he's better at spear throwing, so I'd like <laughs> you to leave. <laughs> Is the Orestes and Romanos relationship expected to be monogamous? I mean, I don't know if it's monogamous, but it is inherently short term. Yeah. 
So like, which obviously does mean that you're going to be, as I just said, like expected to have like multiple of this relationship throughout your life. Or not necessarily expected to, but like it would be normal. Yeah. Which does raise some questions for the army. Yeah. Yeah. And like similarly, if you're the older guy and then you and the younger guy in the army together, but then he has his own Aromanos, is he like, sorry, mate, I've got this new guy now. Like, yeah, it's all the one question, really. It is all the one question, and, like, I don't think that there's really a good answer to it. Obviously, we've done a lot of talking to try and kind of, like, find Mm. a model that makes sense, but I think that however we talk about this, there are going to be some logistical questions left over where it's just like, but but what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like, it's a great idea. I mean, (laughs) maybe a great idea on paper. It sounds cool. Yeah, that's better. It sounds cool on paper, especially from a queer perspective. Like, yeah, there's this army. Mm. It's made up of gay couples. They're really good in battle incredible but as soon as you dive into it you're like what what yeah yeah and like i guess you can erase some of those problems by being like i guess they must have been like same age couples or like peer couples but then but that still leaves all the problems like what if you break up what if yeah how do they choose these men (laughs) what if you're single but you're really good at spear throwing like you know yeah like what's what's going on there (laughs) I also think even if we are happy with this model of like they're pairs of men who were previously in pederastic relationships, now they're adults and still have this like intense emotional connection. If we're understanding that sex between adult men is taboo, but Mm. this romantic connection is fine, like what are the boundaries of acceptable behavior here? And I don't think that that's necessarily a roadblock to this being possible, but it is something that I feel would warrant further exploration. Yeah. If that's what you're positing. Yeah. Yeah. As I've already mentioned, Mentioned, scholars generally understand the tradition of the sacred band of Thebes being composed of couples to be true. That's mm-hmm. the consensus in scholarship. But this has been called into question by David Latow. Hi, Dave. Our friend. Hi, Dave. Yeah. In his 2002 article, The Legend of the Sacred Band. In this article, Latow concludes that the erotic composition of the band is probably not historical fact. And it's more likely to be a later insertion into the tradition. We've already discussed some of his objections, which are logistical concerns similar to the ones that we've raised. And we're going to talk more about some of his arguments in a minute. But I first wanted to note that obviously Leitao's conclusions represent a very drastic reinterpretation of the band's history. And it's worth mentioning that they have not been integrated into the scholarship on the band in the nearly 20 years since his article was published. All of the scholarship I read that postdates Leitao continues to present the band's erotic composition as fact, either without referencing his work or referencing his work specifically in order to state that it isn't convincing. Okay. Despite this, though, no one has yet published an in-depth response refuting Leitao's claims, so that's a bit of a frustrating situation to be in. Yeah, yeah. I guess, like, realistically, it's maybe possible that this was an army with a bunch of, like, couples in it who were very well-known or, like, successful warriors, and, like, the myth kind of spiralled from there. So you're suggesting that it wasn't actually 150 couples, but it just was a successful army that happened to include a few prominent couples? Yeah, something like that, and so that it kind of became a myth out of that. Oh, yeah. I guess what I would note about that is that we don't have any specific couples mentioned in the historical yeah. record anywhere, which isn't impossible. Like, stuff happens with sources, but you would expect... If there were, like, famous couples yeah. in here, you would hear their names. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you an idea of a couple of Leitao's arguments and what responses do exist to them in the mm-hmm. scholarship. Just to be clear, Leitao's article is, like, quite detailed and quite long, and I did not have the time to go through, like, points 
point by point all the objections he makes. I hope that I have not created like a version of his argument that is radically different than the one in the full article or uh, that I've made it look, you know, way worse than it is or way better than it is or anything like that. But you didn't want to hear <laughs> this analysis in full. So, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, for example, Leitel points out that Xenophon's Hellenica doesn't make any mention of the sacred band. Xenophon was a general historian and philosopher who was alive at the time we're talking about. So mm-hmm. the potential for a primary source is here. He was born in Athens, but he was exiled from there and fought with the Spartans. So he's generally associated with Sparta. And he was very much biased in favor of the Spartans. The effect of this bias on his work is very much discussed, particularly regarding Thebes in this period. And there is a lot of stuff that he blatantly leaves out that mm. is not the sacred band. So for example, I said that we're going to talk about some major battles that the sacred band is involved in the first of those battles xenophon does not mention at all mm-hmm. is this because sparta lost yes okay. <laughs> <laughs> i mean sparta did lose and he doesn't mention it and he really likes sparta and hates thebes but you, like draw your own conclusions yeah. <laughs> so rom notes that arguments from silence carry little weight in discussions of xenophon and another scholar john ma also notes that Leitau quote lends too much value to xenophon's silence mm-hmm. yeah Leitau also makes note of plutarch's phrasing some say that this band was composed of lovers and beloved mm-hmm. understanding that he is denoting skepticism for that tradition rom in refuting this refers to brad Cook's article on Plutarch's use of the word legati, which is essentially just like it is said, oh, yeah. uh, and similar like vague source references. I realize that this kind of nitty gritty grammar stuff is very boring to everyone, so I'll be quick. <laughs> Cook argues that while this is often treated as a mark of skepticism in scholarship now, and it is used as such by earlier Greek historians, Plutarch used it instead to mark reference to a particular tradition, effectively using it to introduce the citation of a source, and points to a lot of places that he uses similar phrasing that is just obviously not denoting skepticism. Okay. Okay. So that argument isn't a very strong one at all from Leitau then? Not according to James Rom and Brad Cook. Okay. 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 In Plato's Symposium, literally the third time it's come up independently in this episode... Phaedrus, who is another one of the speakers at the symposium, talks hypothetically about the benefits of creating an army consisting of pairs of lovers. This is sometimes understood as a reference to the band, but it does not specifically mention the sacred band explicitly. So would Plato's symposium have been written like, where is Plato's symposium written compared to when the sacred band existed? Do you mean where or when? When. Okay. Yeah. We don't know the exact date that it was composed, but it would have been written like around this time. So we can, for the purposes of this episode, just generally say it would have been written when the sacred band of Thebes existed and therefore probably if Plato wanted to mention it he could have yeah okay but I will note that although it's written then it's actually set earlier it's set in the late 5th century BCE and so the argument goes that well no they couldn't refer to the band without creating an anachronism oh yeah so it fully makes sense in that context for Plato to be like referencing the band for his contemporary audience but not like mentioning it by name because that would like ruin the suspension of disbelief in his book that makes sense I will note however that Leitau has argued that philosophical arguments such as that one from Plato are ultimately the source for the erotic nature of the band. And according to this argument, this tradition became confused with the actual history of the band later. So by the time we get to Plutarch, it's just stated as part of the tradition. Rather than just being kind of a philosophical concept that may Mm. not be rooted in fact. Yeah. 
I mean, that doesn't sound impossible. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in that case, why would it then be linked to the Sacred Band of Thebes specifically? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it is a bit weird to say, like, okay, there is this Sacred Band that does exist. Whenever people want to talk about, like, hypothetically, what if there was a band made up of male lovers? They talk about these guys, like, why? What led why? to that initial connection and use of them as a hypothetical, philosophically, what if this band was made up of lovers? I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just that stereotype about Thebans really getting it on. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that that stereotype about Thebes is sort of always present in this argument Mm -hmm. of, well, is this statement about the band just reflecting a stereotype or is it reflecting the fact that there's some truth to that stereotype, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So that's a whole mess. That's all I had to say about the band being gay. I don't know how you feel about it. Do the sources, as much as you have them, like Plutarch and so forth, do they talk about the sacred band of Thebes with, like, respect or, like, positively? Or uh, Yes, generally. I can't think about – I don't know about all of them off the top of my head. There is a little bit, I think, of that sort of vibe of, like, oh, those sexually permissive Boeotians. And I'm not sure what some of the later ones say. Like, we have some that come a few centuries after Plutarch, which is just, like, a whole other, you know, social context. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't look too closely at them because I didn't think that they really had that much to contribute. But, like, yeah, generally, like, Plutarch's certainly pretty positive about them. Okay. Okay. So I don't know if we really feel like we understand the question of whether the band was actually gay more than when we started. Ultimately, I don't really feel like I have any firm conclusions on the historicity of this, but at least we're thoroughly aware of some of the issues now. I guess we can at least conclude from this that in ancient Greece, they thought it would be a cool idea to have an army of gay men. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we may not have learned whether those exact 150 pairs of men were couples in an army. But we've learned that, like, the ancient Greeks had that idea. Mm. Like, they knew that concept. This isn't, like, a modern thing that we came up with looking back at them. Yeah, and Mm. I do think it's good, potentially, for us to, when we do record the pederasty episode, to have this background that actually homosexuality in Greece is, like, quite complicated. Mm. Because I I do think we get sort of stuck in this relatively neat model of, like, this is what pederasty is, and that's, like, the only thing going on. And, obviously, nothing about the ancient world or about human sexuality is particularly neat so yeah. it's been constructive for us to conclude nothing and say that this was a mess that is my takeaway <laughs> the fact that in ancient Greece they were like what if we weaponized gay love like, that's just <laughs> wild mm. imagine that- if the US military did that <laughs> no I don't want to imagine that I hate this you say that jokingly but that is 100% seriously the line that some of the scholars take like I think Rom talks like this that you know Thebes was particularly known for gay love and that was their strength gay love so what did they you know use when they needed to fight Sparta they used the power of gay love (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you could get like a pretty like shallow very like pro-gay movie out of this I think I, we could I make a like solid that. action movie from yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, you know, like, obviously 300, the movie exists, and it's pretty trash. Yeah. But, like, oh, like that kind of movie only gets made about, like, hyper-masculine, mm. non-gay ancient stuff, and I think that we need to start having that level of, like, cheesy military stabby movie, but with gay stuff in it. Yeah. yeah. I and would I, like that a lot. And I think in that kind of movie, you could reasonably have, like, yeah, 
thieves defeat his father with the power of gay love and that kind of nonsense line fits into that kind of yeah. silly film yeah yeah so we're now going to jump back into history and talk about the three battles that the sacred band of thebes was involved in i really really heavily decided to lean towards talking about the gay stuff in depth rather than the military and battle tactics i just kind of had a guess that the audience might prefer that <laughs> Um, so I am going to give fairly brief overviews of what are, in some cases, battles that have a lot of scholarship devoted to them and debating particular tactics and, and stuff like that. If you want to know more, you can read James Rom's book. So in the years following the Theban liberation, Thebes gradually liberated other Boeotian city-states from Spartan rule. In 375, Pelopidas turned his attention to Orchomenus, which was a city in Boeotia that was still controlled by the Spartans. Hang yes. on, which guy was Pelopidas? Pelopidas is the main guy who snuck back into Thebes oh, yeah. with yeah. his friends in disguise and then stabbed yeah, someone. Cool. So he is uh, like hot-headed military bro. All right. Just think of him in those terms. Okay. <laughs> Okay, sexy rebel Pelopidas. Yeah, Got it. yeah, yeah. Is um, Pelopidas in the sacred band? So, like, unclear, basically. So, as I said, like, Gorgidas made the band and then Pelopidas takes over leading it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he has taken over leading it by now or if he does after this. I It seems more like now, but mm-hmm. I don't know if, like, leading it is separate to being in it and I don't know if you have to have a boyfriend to lead it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Okay, those were kind of the questions I was asking, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like the answer is that he's not in it from how it was talked about. I don't think he counts as one of the 300. Okay, okay. So Pelopidas was keeping an eye on Orchomenus, the city that he wanted, and one day he heard that the Spartan garrison had left the city to go out on a raid or some such, and he decided to take the sacred band and some cavalrymen to try and capture Orchomenus before they returned. So they rush over to Orchomenus, and when they get there, they find that a replacement garrison has already arrived, and so they kind of just awkwardly turn around to <laughs> Okay. So they're walking back home and they travel through a district called Tagaira where they find a path that is quite constricted by flooding. So they're between like the sort of rocky hills and the marshlands and the area is flooded. So they have to go through a really narrow pass. And so they're walking through this really narrow pass and it's in this position that they find themselves facing the returning Spartan garrison, which significantly outnumbers them. But if they're all on the narrow path, they have to go at this one at a time, right? Not Not that narrow (laughs) yeah picture like six guys can walk in a line or something you can still get like an okay phalanx together obviously the thebans are a bit alarmed by this (laughs) and one of the soldiers says in a panic we've fallen into our enemy's hands pelopidas replies why not they into ours (laughs) i love pelopidas me too (laughs) is he just this dramatic all the time uh yeah sure why not okay um so both sides form up for battle because they kind of have to and they go into battle, they charge at each other, and the two Spartan leaders are quickly killed. Deprived of leadership, the Spartan force was disoriented and fled towards Orchomenus. The Thebans chased them <laughs> as far as they dared, but didn't actually want to get to Orchomenus where there were more soldiers, so at some point stopped and left. They returned to Tagara where they despoiled the Spartan dead and made a trophy of the Spartans' weapons, declaring Theban victory. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, despoiled the dead is not that yeah. nice, but in the context where we're on the Theban side, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, you know, it's 
war is bad and the Thebans are very much just sort of posited as good guys in the stories I'm telling it, but like... They're just wandering around the countryside invading cities. Yeah, like Thebes is not good in these 40 years any more than any other city-state, yep. obviously. <clears throat> That's my disclaimer that war is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You heard it first on Queer as <laughs> Yeah. So this was quite a big deal. I think that you know even people who don't know much about Greece have a sense for what Sparta was like as a military power. Yeah. They had that reputation as basically just being the best. A few of the sources I read claimed that Sparta had never been defeated in a land battle or had never been defeated when they outnumbered their opponents and things like that. The exact details of those claims changed a bit from source to source and it's hard to just casually check those things Mm -hmm. so i don't know but the sense is that this was just a really huge deal and very surprising to everyone in greece Mm -hmm. it very much raised the spirits of the thebans and their reputation in greece in general as previously mentioned the band was first created by gorgidas under gorgidas the band was spread out across the whole front of the army so it was quite dispersed and according to plutarch after tagaira pelopidas never afterwards divided or scattered them but treated them as a unit put them in the forefront of the greatest conflicts okay so, so they used to kind of just spread out across the front of the army now they're like if we put them all together they're very powerful yeah yeah so in 371 so like four years later the greeks met to discuss coming to a common peace so during this whole period as i mentioned like right at the top you know greece has been doing a lot of war for a long time and they mm-hmm. just periodically get to the point where they they can't do it anymore yeah. you know they're exhausting themselves uh and this whole period is kind of like a general downward spiral of greece and all the city states within greece like exhausting itself until someone can come in and conquer it mm-hmm. um so right now they're pretty tired and they want to be at peace for a while instead of all killing each other yeah so they have a conference where they all get together and they're like shall we have a peace and instead Epaminondas and the Spartan king Agesilaus have a violent disagreement and Thebes is excluded from the peace. Because Sparta is the most powerful in Greece at the moment, Sparta is sort of dictating the terms of this and who's in it and whatnot so it's like the Spartan king Agesilaus who's the one who strikes Thebes off. So effectively what this means is that Sparta can go to war with Thebes which it does so immediately. This is understood in at least some of the scholarship to have like maybe been a setup because Sparta had an army conveniently very close to Thebes so it could be at Thebes' doorstep ready to fight a battle very fast. Mm. So I will just quickly explain that Sparta had two kings. Yeah. One of them is this guy, Agesilaus, who was at the peace treaty. The other is a guy called Cleombrotus who was with the army. Is this okay. like the normal arrangement in Sparta? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're two like hereditary yeah. positions just like with most kingships but there's two of them so spartan king number two cleombrotus is with an army just north of boeotia and within a few weeks the spartan and theban armies met at the plain of leuctra not far from thebes the thebans were again heavily outnumbered the historian john buckler estimates they had about 7500 troops and sparta had about 11,000. now we are going to talk a little bit about greek battle tactics the customary formation for a greek infantry battle was for both sides to put their strongest forces on the right wing which means that they'd both be facing the weaker half of the opposite army Every time I picture this when I was reading Rom's book and like thinking about battle tactics, all I could think was like, obviously, like the two right sides are gonna advance. They're gonna rotate. Yeah, they're just gonna kind of spin. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the mental image that I had. 
Yeah. But that's not really that different from the idea. So, like, hold that image in your mind. So what is sort of meant to happen is they will fight, the two left sides will crumple because they're not very good, and then the two strong right sides can fight each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Epaminondas is the guy who is in charge of the battle on the Theban side. He is deciding all the tactics, and Pelopidas is also there, but in command of the Sacred Band specifically. Mm-hmm. So Epaminondas did not go with these normative tactics and instead placed his strongest troops, which included the Sacred Band and Pelopidas, on the left. Okay. He also stacked them super, super deep. So you have a phalanx in your ancient Greek battle, which is just like a tightly knit unit of guys in lines. Yeah. And in this case, he had them in a phalanx that was 50 shields deep, which is much, much deeper than is normal. Okay. Okay. So he's got this super jacked left wing, basically. Okay. Okay. Would the Dow politics have that? (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Anyway. So this force was facing the Spartans, who were the strong right wing on the opposite side, and not the Spartans' allies, who were worse. Mm -hmm. So the battle began with initial cavalry skirmishes between the two armies. The Thebans quickly routed the inferior Spartan cavalry. So the Spartans are really known for their like hoplite prowess rather than their cavalry prowess. So a hoplite is just like a like a an guy infantry guy. Around. Yeah. So we've had our initial cavalry skirmishes, and the Thebans have completely wrecked the Spartan cavalry because the Spartan cavalry sucks. And the Spartan cavalry gets driven back into the Spartan line. Um, So this creates this moment of chaos where the line isn't properly formed and Pelopidas and the Sacred Band seize on this moment of chaos and they charge. Mm -hmm. And this goes very well. Cleombrotus is mortally wounded and dragged from the field and Epaminondas and the rest of the Thebans then also charge and quickly defeat the Spartan army. Nice. As mentioned, the Spartan king, or one of the Spartan kings, is killed and almost a thousand men on the Spartan side are also killed, including 400 elite Spartan troops. Mm -hmm. Theban losses are comparatively slight, and after the battle, the Thebans erected one of the first permanent battlefield trophies. So effectively like a big statue saying, we We won won a battle here and we're great. A modern reconstruction of this stands on the field to this point. Oh, cool. Leuctra was the decisive end of Sparta's military domination in Greece and the beginning of a period called the Theban Hegemony, which lasted from 371 to 362 and during which Thebes was the dominant military force in Greece. So they're the big boys now. (laughs) We're now entering this period where we don't actually have anything in the sources specifically about the Sacred Band for several decades. Mm. So while this is quite an important and interesting period in Theban military history, it's not actually all that relevant to our episode. And so I'm just going to kind of zoom through it so you know the broad strokes of what's going on and some of Thebes's greatest hits. And then <laughs> we're going to talk about the final battle. Okay. okay. So following the battle at Leuctra, Thebes launched an invasion into the Peloponnese, which is the region that Sparta is in. This is also quite a big deal. You don't just go mm-hmm. invading Sparta's neighborhood. <laughs> Thebes liberated Sparta's neighboring district of Messenia from its control, creating a hostile city on Sparta's borders. And the major walled city of Megalopolis was also built during this period in Arcadia, which is to Sparta's north, creating another barrier to Sparta regaining its dominance. So did Thebes build this city? Uh, Like, Thebes was involved in the founding of this city. Okay. Pelopidas fell in battle in 364, and Epaminondas fell in battle in 362. After this, Thebes remained prominent in Greek politics for several decades, but their military power was diminished, and there's no one... Greek city-state that is the big boy. Okay. 
So we've got this sort of unstable power vacuum type situation just waiting for someone to step in. Mm -hmm. Completely unrelated to that, shortly after this, in 359, Philip II came to the throne of Macedonia. I see. Philip had actually interestingly been a hostage in Thebes, like that sort of political hostage setup, Mm -hmm. uh, for several years as a teenager in the 360s. So he's got a direct personal connection to Thebes, which is kind of interesting Mm. and fun for the purposes of our story. So where's Macedonia in relation to Thebes? North. After Philip secured his position in Macedonia, he began to expand his territory. He became involved in Greek politics, so he fought in various wars, like allied with one city-state or another, and in 338 he seized upon a pretext to enter Greece and capture a city called Alatia, which was very alarming because it was in a strategic position to attack both Athens and Thebes. Oh, okay. Philip sent diplomats to Thebes asking them to ally with him against Athens or at least to stay neutral and let him pass. Athens likewise sent diplomats to Thebes. Understandably, Athens was panicking quite a bit. These diplomats included the famous Demosthenes, for what it's worth. Thebes deliberated about what to do here for quite a while. Of the decision they had to make, historian John Buckler wrote, the Thebans could at one vote resolve their differences with Philip and enrich themselves at the expense of an old enemy, that being Athens. Mm -hmm. They had much to gain by following Philip and everything to lose if they did not. But when Thebes finally came to a decision, they allied with Athens. Okay. So has this scholar misunderstood the situation then? No. Okay. No. Why Um, did they make this choice? So it's a matter of debate. Um, (laughs) Okay. Rom's conclusion is a quite romantic, but not necessarily false, understanding that this is about, you know, Greek independence and Greek freedom. Yeah. Macedonia is a foreign power, whereas even though, you know, Athens and Thebes are culturally different or not, they're still both Greek. Mm-hmm. And this battle that is about to happen, not to indicate the ending of it, <laughs> is very much kind of understood as the last like Greek battle for independence mm-hmm. uh, and the battle at which they lose their independence in which Greece is effectively destroyed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can, you can speculate about why they made that decision. There's not like a simple answer to it, but yeah. potentially that's why. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. In 338 BCE, the Macedonian and Theban Athenian armies met at the plain of Chironea. In this case, they kept with more traditional tactics and the Thebans, the stronger force, were on the right with the Athenians on the left. This meant that the Athenians were facing the stronger side of the Macedonian army and they were facing Philip and his troops. And the Thebans were facing a force led by Alexander, Philip's 18-year-old son, in his first open field battle. I see what's about to happen. (laughs) Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. (laughs) I assume we'll see you in a full episode one day. Yeah. One at minimum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The Athenians were quickly soundly defeated by Philip. On the other end of the line, Alexander's troops rushed forward when the battle began, quickly managed to cut the Thebans off from the other troops and annihilated the sacred band. After the battle, Philip was surveying the field and came across the bodies of the sacred band. Plutarch tells us he was amazed and when he learned that this was the band of lovers and beloveds, he cried and said, may all those who think that these men did or suffered anything shameful die a horrible death. So that's an interesting quote. That is an interesting quote. And I really don't know what that's meant to mean. (laughs) that Plutarch thinks that maybe there's something that could be perceived as shameful mm. going on between them. Which I guess maybe... Which is 
an interesting thing given all of our speculation about where they fell in relation to Greek sexual norms. Yeah. But then also obviously Plutarch's writing 400 years later. Yeah. 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 But clearly at least like it means for Plutarch that two adult men in love are potentially shameful. If Plutarch's understanding this to be two adult men in love. I guess that's true. Mm. I guess that's true. It seemed more likely to me than that Plutarch understood that there were a bunch of teenagers on the battlefield. Although Alexander was there. He was 18. Yeah. <laughs> um, Plutarch does use specifically the words Erastes and Eromenos, which is generally like a clue that it's we should understand this as pederasty. And yeah, the question of what exactly Plutarch understood to be going on here, I think is really ultimately just a rehash of our earlier conversation. Yeah. So that is the end of The Sacred Band of Thebes. And so our story is going to leave 338 BCE and everything that happens after that and pick up again on June the 3rd, 1818. Oh, wow. Okay. Hi, 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) So on June 3rd, 1818, four English travellers were riding out across the Osher to try and find the site of the Battle of Chironea. Mm -hmm. And while they were riding, they discovered the huge head and paw of a stone lion. And they immediately thought of a passage in Pausanias, uh, Pausanias being essentially like an ancient Greek travel writer mm-hmm. because, you know, they're, they're 19th century Englishmen and they know things about Greece. <laughs> Okay. In one of Pausanias' works, he effectively describes a bunch of landmarks and stuff that were in Greece. It's a very nice thing to have, still exists, it's very helpful. And he writes about Chironea saying, There is a common grave of the Thebans who were killed in the battle against Philip. It has no inscription, but there is a lion monument over it. Oh, mm-hmm. what a wild thing to just ride across in the field. Mm, yes. So they dug up the fragments, like they fully unearthed them as best they could, looked at them and were very excited, presumably read a bit of Pausanias from the copy of Pausanias <laughs> they brought with them, and then reburied them for safekeeping. They left and they tried to obtain them for the British Museum. Uh, when you said they reburied them, I was like, wow, shocking for some Englishmen to just leave artifacts where they found them, but I realised it was... They could not carry them. Yeah. <laughs> or they would have, I'm sure. Yeah. So they tried to obtain them for the British Museum. They failed. Good. Uh, and the fragments remained there for some time, occasionally seen by other 19th century travellers. Were they just extremely large? Extremely large. Yeah. Okay. I think this lion was like six feet tall, you know, stone. Okay. Big, okay. big lion. Yeah. This statue was in pieces, but the pieces were quite big. And so there was talk in Greece about reassembling it. And this sort of talk went on for a while and would get delayed and, and you know, would be forgotten about for a bit for various reasons. Uh, the British actually offered to help fund the reconstruction at one point, but the stone was essentially a symbol of Hellenic resistance to foreign powers. So unsurprisingly, the Greeks refused this offer. Okay. Yeah. Efforts at reconstruction weren't begun until 1879 when the Greek Archaeological Society sent two archaeologists to examine the remains of the lion. And in 1902, a reconstruction of the lion was completed. It exists at Chironea today, and the statue is a mix of essentially the ancient statue and a modern statue built with its pieces. Oh, that's really cool. So we can go and see the lion. We can go and see the lion. Nice. Additionally, in 1880, while they were surveying the site to see if they could rebuild this statue they dug obviously the area where the fragments of the statue had been found and they uncovered a mass grave Mm -hmm. they found an enclosure 74 by 44 feet that had once been surrounded by low stone walls in which the lion had stood in the center and it was within this space that the grave was enclosed 
It contained 254 men buried in seven rows, reminiscent of the phalanx formation. They were buried with few weapons, but many strigils, which are the sort of things you use to scrape oil off you for cleaning purposes. Hundreds of little bone rings, which are thought to have been the eyelets of their sandals. Oh, yeah. And a few ceramic cups. The bodies themselves showed marks of violent death. The discovery was reported by the New York Times on January 8th, 1881, and it noted that some 40 only of the glorious dead are missing. So the remains had therefore already been identified with the 300 men of the sacred band. We cannot determine this with any certainty. You know, there's just no evidence for that apart from the fact that it's about the same amount of guys in this significant place. However, you know, it's about the right amount of guys in the significant place. (laughs) Over the years, most scholars have come to agree that the remains are probably the sacred band. The missing 46 men are assumed to have either died later or to have not been recovered on the battlefield or to have survived. Mm -hmm. It's just so wild. And like, I know this is just how like archaeology is that you can literally just have an ancient book and be like, oh, cool. So they saw there with a lion here with like the mass grave underneath. And like 2000 years later, like, oh yeah, here's the lion. Oh yeah, here are the guys. Yeah, Yeah. that is extremely wild. Most of the skeletons were reburied and presumably are still buried there today. Mm -hmm. Some material from the grave, including bones, was removed to Athens, where it was exhibited in the National Archaeological Museum. In the museum, did they say it was the Sacred Band of Thebes? I don't know what, like, the plaque in the museum said or anything like that, but I do have a quote here from the Macmillan Guide to Greece, the 1908 edition. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which mentions uh, this display in the museum. It says, in this room are exposed the bones of those who died at Chironea with the sword cut showing. This has no bearing on art and is a rather shocking sight. It would have been better to leave these heroes in the graves they earned so nobly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's kind of a bit unclear about exactly what was removed from the grave. Mm-hmm. Um, and matters aren't helped by the fact that the museum was evacuated in 1940 during World War II. And then after the war, this material doesn't appear to have been exhibited again. <clears throat> okay. Some of it seems to have just been lost and some of it remains with the museum but not on display as far as I can tell. So John Ma, who is a scholar who wrote an article on this gravesite, notes that a skeleton encased in plaster has turned up at the National Archaeological Museum. It had been misunderstood to be just a cast of a skeleton and mm-hmm. like catalogued incorrectly because of that. And he thinks based on earlier notes about like the state of a skeleton from this grave that there's at least one more skeleton just around somewhere. I feel I should comment on how don't treat bodies like that. Yeah, unfortunately, like my understanding of museums, this is just how a lot of museums and a lot of especially like old museums and a lot of museum mm. storerooms are like there's a lot of stuff. There may be some notes somewhere telling you what it is. It may have been catalogued by somebody who was just seeing it for the first time that day and was like, looks like a plaster cast of a skeleton with no context. And Um, like, it's clear even at that time, like that Macmillan quote you read us that said they would be better served to remain in the grave they nobly earned or whatever. Mm. Like people at the time were also obviously having this conversation about whether this was an appropriate way to treat human remains. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is still a conversation ongoing in museums Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And like, obviously these remains are going to be treated a lot better than some other remains because the the Greeks these are bones of Greeks in Greece they're not of like a you know people who are dehumanized in the country mm. that they're in or anything like that like mm. you know if we're kind of talking about how remains are treated by museums and also we're in Australia yeah um, obviously we should note that Aboriginal remains have been treated very badly by mm. a lot of museums 
remains. Yeah. 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 And um, still, like, yes. fights are being had to this day yeah. about getting Aboriginal remains back into the hands of their people. Yeah. And I know that there are archives in Britain that claim to have lost bodies of Aboriginal people mm-hmm. and don't either don't want to or legitimately aren't able to return them. Yeah. Um, and um, I think you, like, when you raised that point where you were, like, in 1908 in the Macmillan travel book, clearly that shows this conversation was already mm-hmm. being had. But it's this conversation being had where the travel book recognises these men as, like, heroes of Western yeah. civilization. kind of. They're, like, a significant part of, like, sort of the Western Western self-mythology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, compare how Egyptian remains are treated by museums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, like, perhaps the most normalised context for just having human remains in a case. The last thing I wanted to note is that the chief excavator actually died in 1885 and his notes were lost from the excavation, so there's not really a lot of clear information or, like, a great publishing history regarding this site. While working on Rom's book, researcher Brady Keesling found a brief reference to the excavation notes and discovered that they had been located by the archivists of the Greek Archaeological Society, which is very exciting. Can you imagine what, like, the field of history would look like if people weren't just, like, kind of a little bit incompetent and lost stuff a lot? Well, in this case, this person died. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But, like, like stuff you happens. Know, but just in general. I think maybe a more fun question is, can you imagine what history would be like if we could just magically catalogue and centralise all archives? Yeah, that's true. Because there's a lot of stuff in archives and, like, the archivist there knows it's there, but how am I ever going to find out? How would they know I'm looking for it? How will I know they exist? Yeah. Rom and Kiesling discovered that the excavator had made detailed sketches of all 254 skeletons, oh, wow. marking their wounds as well as depicting the layout of the entire grave. Uh, he also noted that some, a couple of the pairs of skeletons had their arms linked. Oh, okay. Is that very unusual? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it just seemed cute and gay. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Rom obtained photographs of these drawings and they're included in his book. Their inclusion there is the first time that they've ever been published. I think it's like really, they're a real treat. They're a wonderful mm. part of that book. Um, it's I, very good. He starts every chapter with just like, you know, a little, like a sketch of a few of the skeletons. Mm. And then I think at the end of the book, you get the complete composite of how they were all in the grave. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. To be clear, these skeleton drawings are like technically quite bad, <laughs> which I think only adds to their charm. <laughs> yeah. The book, as you've sort of mentioned, Alice, also contains a composite image of the 254 illustrations by digital illustrator Markley Boyer, reassembling the grave as it appeared in 1880 CE when it was excavated and more or less presumably in 338 BCE when it was buried. The last thing I want to talk about is just a little bit about the reception of the Sacred Band of Thebes. As you might expect, the Sacred Band of Thebes was rediscovered in the 19th century by queer men, and as you might expect, it became a very important positive depiction of male love. The poet Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass was clearly influenced by his readings of Greek literature. For example, in one of the poems Whitman wrote, I dreamed in a dream of a city where all men were like brothers. Oh, I saw them tenderly love each other. I often saw them in numbers walking hand in hand. I dreamed that was the city of robust friends. Nothing was greater there than manly love. It led the rest. It was seen every hour in the actions of men of that city and in all their looks and words. 
episodes. Whitman's close friend, William Sloan Kennedy, specifically attributed this passage to Whitman's reading of Plutarch's Pelopidus, so the same biography I've been pulling from this whole episode, Mm -hmm. and its account of the sacred band. The poem was published in 1860, but it was toned down for publication. The band was also important to John Addington Simmons, who was himself gay and who had come across Plato's Symposium by chance, describing it as the revelation I had long been waiting for. In 1873, he wrote a work called A Problem in Greek Ethics, which is a very carefully neutral to negative title uh, Mm -hmm. that does not express the content of the book. (laughs) I see. (laughs) He was just trying to like be like, oh yeah, I wrote a book about Greek ethics. Not I wrote a book about the gays. Yeah. This reminds me of Michael Dillon's book about how trans people should basically have medical autonomy, which was called like self uh, medical ethics treaties or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this was a work on Greek homosexuality, and in it he said, It should be noted that the military aspect of Greek love was nowhere more distinguished than at Thebes. Although he struggled with his sexuality for his entire life, he was able to achieve some measure of self-acceptance from Greek literature and from the tradition of the sacred band. In July of 1895, George Cecil Ives wrote in his diary, I've been reading the old Greek books of the passionate comradeship, world old and eternal, which closed the ranks at Chironea and made all flight and fear impossible. And it must be so now. When I think of the broken hearts and fallen victims strewn on this grim world's battlefields. This was written only a few weeks after Oscar Wilde, who Ives had met a few years earlier, was sentenced to two years hard labour. A few years later, Ives began to date his diary entries by the years elapsed since the Battle of Chironea in 338 BCE, calling this dating system the Year of the Faith, Year of the Greek Band, or Year of the Band of Lovers. I don't think we've ever had like a gay calendar in this podcast before. Maybe not. What year is it? <laughs> Quick, do some maths. Do some maths. When was, when was the battle? It's 2359. Cool. Nice. Nice. Cool. <laughs> cool. That was very fast. <laughs> well, it could be wrong, and in that case, we'll cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> He formed a secret society of gay men called the Order of Chironea. The Order developed its own rituals, and Rom calls it a kind of mystic religion with a sacred band serving as its patron saints. Ives wrote in his diary in 1893, The time is at hand. I know not who will live or who will die, but I believe that liberty is coming. I'm more sanguine than I was once. Now I sometimes think that some of us will live to see the victory. Oh, I do think it's, it's cool and it's interesting that we can kind of see parts of ancient Greeks society perceiving of like erotic love between men as being something sort of that powerful Mm, mm. I think especially like that discussion we had at the end just there where you talked about the reception and it's probably not so much in our society today but like a hundred years ago if you were one of these educated wealthy British men like your identity is so heavily built around Mm. your understandings of the ancient world and images of the ancient world and that fact that those men had an example to look back on that was like a really positive example of male homosexuality being viewed as a strength is really good. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's that like this is gay love being structured as kind of a heroic thing in a very like traditionally masculine sense. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. If you enjoy this episode, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts in particular, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a review and a rating out of five stars. And to prove that we do still read these and people do still leave them, so it's a cool (laughs) and hip thing to do. (laughs) 
I will read you one to two right now. Okay. <laughs> so the first three we're reading is from Joe Seely, who is in the USA and titled their review, Fantastic Podcast, Five Stars. Thank you. Um, they write, I recently started listening to this podcast and am obsessed. I love learning about queer history and this podcast is a must for everyone. Every episode is well-researched, nuanced, informative, accessible, and so interesting. I really appreciate you dropping in keywords for the <laughs> algorithm. <laughs> um, the hosts are delightful and casual, so it really feels like I'm there at the table with them. Listen to at least 15 episodes so far and everyone has been fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. I love that they didn't say like this is a must for like queer people wanting to learn more about their identity just a must for everyone no matter who you are (laughs) (laughs) true i didn't think about that i also really like it when people say stuff like it feels like that they're at the table with them because that is the vibe we're going for yeah yes i always get very like emotional when people are like in isolated areas and they're like i feel like i have some queer friends when i turn Mm. you on and i'm like oh no You do. That is true. I was also just thinking we desperately are trying to make history podcasts interesting just to go against the herd of many of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot better now than like when we started doing this. Anyway, thank you very much for that review. We appreciate it a lot. The next one I will read you is from Zdex. 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 (laughs) Please only listen to the one in which I pronounced it correctly. If I mispronounced all, you just heard static randomly for some reason, but you know it's you. Uh, who was also from America and also gave us a five-star review and the title of their review is just a love heart emoji. Oh, very good. They write, just started listening and I'm already hooked. The way these hosts relay literally buckets of information (laughs) (laughs) in a digestible and simple way is top tier, so informative and important, regardless of your knowledge of the topic coming in. Can't wait to keep listening. Every once in a while, something that one of us has done an episode on, like, comes up casually in conversation, uh, just like in my life, and I have to be like, I know literally an hour worth of facts about this. <laughs> I know a normal be number chill. of facts about this topic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to hear uh, from both of those reviewers that they're new listeners. Yes. Which is exciting. Welcome. People are still coming. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much to ZDEX, etc. for that review. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Good. If you would like to find us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com and you can also post things to us physically. That information is on our website, but I will also read you the address, which is PO Box 390 in North Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, postcode 3051. We look forward to hearing from you. If you would like to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can become a supporter of us on Patreon. We've recently sort of redone how we do Patreon a bit, so there's more rewards than ever there. Um, We're going to be releasing some bonus content there for $1 patrons, so like everyone who wants it, as many people who want it as possible can get it, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's never been a better time to become a patron. Uh, Patrons also get to vote on episodes. We're doing a monthly newsletter now. There are other perks, but I feel like I've talked about this enough, so just go over there and check that out. (laughs) And you can find all of the information I've just said to you on our website at queerasfact.com. We will be back on the 1st of August when we will be staying in the ancient world and returning to our Roman Emperor series with Alice telling us about the Roman Emperor Hadrian and his lover Antinous. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then.